Welcome to Marketing Thought Leadership, the podcast that offers insightful discussions on thought-provoking marketing topics. Here's the host of our show, marketing consultant, speaker, author, and educator, and the president of L2M Associates, Linda Popke. Hi, this is Linda Popke, and welcome to our latest episode of Marketing Thought Leadership. I'm here today with Wayne Cerullo, who is the Chief Prospect Officer of B2P Partners. He helps B2B companies more effectively and enjoyably serve the people who are their clients. He's been doing this for many fast-growing software-as-a-service innovators for the last 15 years. He's also previously shaped marketing messaging worldwide for such tech companies as IBM, Microsoft, and Intel. He's the author of two books on the power of buyer awareness to turn around and make businesses flourish. He now um, lives in the San Francisco area and um, and is here to talk to us today. So welcome, Wayne. Thanks, Linda. Great to be here. So let's talk a little bit about you've done a lot of research about the state of B2B marketing, uh, which is unusual because a lot of us just say like we know what we're doing, but you've actually researched this. So why did you go out and conduct that research, and then what did you find when you did that? Uh, Linda, I have to say it was a matter of the uh, children's, the, the cobbler's children having no shoes. <laughs> uh, I realized that we needed to do for ourselves what we do for our clients, which, you know, is always painful to admit. Uh, and that was because in the last year or so, I found that conversations around marketing strategy, which is where we focus, were changing and were occurring in a, a different context. Um, and so we actually did the kind of uh, uh, buyer journey and persona work that we do for our clients, for ourselves, to understand how our B2B and often SaaS uh, marketing people thinking about the work that we're doing. The key That's thing interesting. That we so found, we actually did something for ourselves that we do for clients, which I think, believe it or not, for most people listening, a lot of marketers don't do, right? We're so busy taking care of our clients, we don't do anything like that for ourselves. Totally. Um, and I have to say from, you know, over the last decade or so of seeing how marketing is changing, uh, and, you know, I, I don't want to be the four millionth person to say marketing has changed, uh, but I think I'm four, four million and one now. But it, it, the implications of that change are, are pretty amazing. Uh, there's actually a wrestling match going on in marketing right now. Uh, it is for the hearts and minds of marketers. Uh, and it's interesting, I just came back from the B2B MX conference in Phoenix, and I've been waiting for this day, but for the first time I heard people talking about having too much technology, um, having too many data points, and needing to consolidate their MarTech stack. Oh, wonderful. I Finally. knew that day would come. Yeah, but I never knew that the day was was this week. So yeah, um, no, wow, I've been waiting so for that as well. Much. Technology, technology, technology. You need to add this and add that and that. I actually had a client where I sat and talked to someone, and she said, "We have technology coming in and technology going out, and we spend more time trying to figure out how to get it to talk to each other than we do actually using it." So I'm glad to hear that someone's finally getting to that point. Good news. Well, we, we did uh, the, the uh, research that's available in um, a report we're calling uh, Get More From Your MarTech, uh, which is on our website. 
And okay. um, part of the implications from that are that, that marketing is becoming something new. Um, I'd say marketing has become um, three new types of management. Um, one, for better or for worse, it's program management. You know, you're managing your SEO program. You're managing mm -hmm. your lead gen program. You're managing your ABM program. And so there's a new way of thinking about marketing that's being done by new people in a new context with new metrics and new values. Um, so that's, that's both good and bad, um, but it is, there's a focus now on program management. One of the unseen, unseen things about um, marketing is that particularly in the B2B SaaS space, it is a, a business of change management. So the second management is about change management. We're all selling things that are supposed to be changing the way people do business. Mm -hmm. And one of the implications is that we are unfortunately generally failing to focus like a um, EY or a, a consulting firm would on what's involved in changing uh, and helping our clients change. Um, and the third is related to it, and that is consensus management. Um, none of us sells to an individual anymore. Uh, we're all selling to a buying group, and that buying group is a large, growing, complex, diverse, and uh, we need to be able to get a sale by creating a consensus within that group. So marketing has become program management, change management, consensus management. It's interesting that you say that because you're right. I mean, there was a time, I think, when you'd go to a, a fairly large company and somebody could make a decision and you're in and out and you, you were able to get started on the project. But I think perhaps because there's so many data sources involved and so much, uh, you know, kind of uh, put in by various groups that there's a consensus that has to happen because whatever you do with your data is going to get thrown over the wall to me and how does that interact with the programs that I have? So it's become much, much more complex. Um, and then does that mean that, that buyers are harder to reach today than they were before? Because I'm finding that. <laughs> I guess that's a rhetorical question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's totally true. And here's, here's one of the interesting things is that um, we generally in the B2B world have a limited number of buyers on the planet. Yep. And so the focus on lead gen is in some ways misguided because, well, frankly, we don't generate leads, right? Right. I mean, we meet buyers when they're looking to buy, hopefully, and there's a limited number of them. So the focus really needs to shift from quantity of leads to quality of conversion. Mm. And that's particularly hard when because buying groups are larger. The research shows that the, the average number of buyers has, has risen from 5.4 a few years ago into well into the sevens. And wow. I frequently meet people who are into dozens of people. And what happens mathematically, you can imagine, is that conversion rates drop precipitously when that happens. Yep. Oh, and 60%, according to the CEB, of B2B engagements and in no decision. Wow. So our number one competitor is, is nothing. Nothing happens. Status quo. Linda, another implication of this change in the marketing world is that marketers are drowning in the sea of data delusion. 
And I mean that in two ways. Uh, one is, yes, there's a deluge of data, but the other is that we are transfixed by having data. Conversations can't happen without data. And that's not a bad thing, but the bad thing is that our data is often not good, and we will all nod to that. It's not connected. There's not one source of truth. It's not really representing what we really want to know. It's generally a correlate of it. And what we're doing is we're increasing, we're adding instruments to the instrument panel rather than simply looking out the window to fly the plane. And the, the danger in that is that we're losing track of the people, remember we said there was a limited number of them, right. who we need to convince to buy our solution, uh, and we're burning through them in a sense. And as a result, the focus on quantity rather than quality is uh, causing us to use up the real prospects with whom we could have a real connection by saying really important things that they're looking for. And we're we're just trying to put a lot of content out. Yeah, and it's all and it seems to be the more content the merrier, right? <laughs> Everybody's trying to outdo each other. And this is what I talk about in my book, uh, Marketing Above the Noise, because it's like being in a big uh, conference hall and everybody's talking at once and now we're putting out more content. So we're talking more and more and more. And if you're the consumer or the prospect, you're saying, um, I'd like to go someplace quiet and get away from all of this, which is exactly the wrong answer we're looking for as, as marketers. Linda, it's like being at a party that when you enter and there's a small number of people there, you hear conversations. Right. But as the room gets filled, the level of conversation needs to increase uh, astronomically uh, exponentially because the level of noise is becoming higher. Absolutely. And as a result, we can't, you know, figuratively and literally hear ourselves think. Um, and as a result, it, uh, it's not, it, it's depressing, but not surprising that uh, buying cycles are in fact increasing despite all the tools that we have. Um, that conversion rates are down despite all the things that we're doing. And so, and one well, maybe more thing because is, of making because of we have we have <laughs> yeah. analysis paralysis. You know, before I didn't have access to all this information. Now, as a buyer, wow, I got to look at all this, and I've got to do my due diligence before I go to my manager and say this is what I want. And therefore, I'm stuck. It, it's having too many choices or too much information to to digest. Yeah. Exactly so, true, Linda. What implications does that have for us? Because it sounds kind of dire. It sounds a little depressing. Um, for us who are those people among us who are B2B marketers, what should we do? How do we fight back against this? Yeah, great question. In fact, actually, I was as I was anticipating our uh, talking, I was thinking we ought to have a, uh, a warning label at the beginning, which is that <laughs> the first half of this conversation is going to be a downer. So, um, so if you're still listening, this is the good part. <laughs> um, one of the things that's happening is that um, marketing is, is, as it reforms, it's kind of getting squished to cover, this is a bad news and good news story, to cover more things than it did before. And I'm mm -hmm. hearing this from a lot of uh, marketers with whom I'm speaking. So yeah. um, it's coming in the form of ABM. 
uh, as I mentioned, I just came from a conference, and ABM has now become mainstream. It's everybody is doing it or saying they're doing it and, and struggling with it. Um, so that's that's pretty much where everybody is. Um, the good news in that bad news is that as a result, we need as marketers to get focused on creating conversations that convert. And less on top of funnel um, histrionics and more on mid funnel and through the funnel conversations that actually make a difference and have an impact. And um, there are there are some tools that we have to work with that, um, but I think marketers are being stretched as we switch from a quantity orientation to a quality orientation. Uh, one of the tools that we have um, is, again, a bad news, good news story, is personas. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I, I see the eye rolls. Uh, I understand that, um, and as well there should be. It's one of those things that has been, um, it's like, uh, Linda, you remember solution marketing back in the day. It was, oh, yeah. It was the new way of selling, and, and the right. concept of it was brilliant. It was useful. It was helpful. But then we'll, as marketers we did was we took what product marketing we were doing um, and product selling we were doing and slapped a new label on it and moved on. Right. So the the real the real idea completely lost its power. Same thing with personas. Um personas have become sort of a joke, I think. Um but real personas can make a real difference. In fact, one of the books that I wrote was uh Personas with Punch, the true stories of six personas that actually made a difference for their marketers, their companies, and their bottom line because they can actually turn a company around if you know who you're selling to and what they're looking for. And over the years, I've done, you know, literally hundreds if not thousands of interviews with, with your buyers, <laughs> with buyers out there in the B2B space, and they are desperately looking for information and for help. They are seeking it actively. They're just not looking for most of the stuff that we're sending out to them. So tell me, and I understand what you're saying, but how do we know a real persona that works from kind of just an ordinary one that's put together? What do you see as being the key characteristics that make a persona useful to uh, to a marketer? Yeah, great question. Uh, in fact, we tracked this in a report that's available on our website called the State of Personas. We uh, tracked it over several years, and um, one of the things that we found was that um, – a significant portion, which I won't, I won't mention, um, of marketers admitted that they were making personas up. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> economic buyer. Okay, yeah, we can probably pretty much, you know, uh, uh, we call them those pizza personas. Um, mm -hmm. You get a pizza, you get a bunch of people around a table, and you write stuff on a board, um, which is neat if you really know who your your um, prospects are, and you, you've met them, and you've spoken with them, and you've done the real work, but generally that's not the case. So the key difference, Linda, to your question is uh, that you actually do persona research that actually uncovers who they are. Um, and one of the three things that you learn from doing that work is the most exciting of which is um, that you don't know what you don't know. And right. so... 
you may be right about something, but you're probably wrong about why people are doing it, and therefore the angle at which you're creating your content is offline. Uh, what you're not providing is not clear uh, to begin with, and you're just working from your own internal assumptions, which is really the thing that personas were supposed to get us around to right. begin with. Right. So, so what you're saying is we're tending to go with our gut feel, which is marketers we've always done, and sometimes that's right, but sometimes it's not, and sometimes it's probably the worst thing you can do when you think you've got it right, but you're off by just a little because that trajectory takes you in the wrong direction and you never get to where you're going. Totally true, and and the way that you do that investigation is really important too. If you're looking for, we always we can only see what we're looking for, right? Right. And if we're doing it from kind of an internal perspective and we're looking for people who agree with the solution and what we're saying about it, then we might as well save the time and money. But if we're really looking at why does an issue become a problem that the company believes or that individuals in the company believe is worth raising as a problem to be solved, um, that the whole trigger is incredibly important to understand. And we generally assume that people are out looking for products like ours uh, so that they can solve problems. But the reality is that the last thing that uh, individual at a company wants to do is to have to go out through that long, laborious process of finding an external vendor for mm -hmm. a solution that they have. The, 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 what they really want to do is just make the thing go away. Right. There's a longer story there, but you hopefully see the perspective. We, we assume that people are looking for our solutions rather than trying to simply make a problem go away. Well, because we put it around us. It's our solution. When, to be honest with you, the customer only cares about our solution if it's there to help solve his problem and, and make something happen. And, again, you know, I, I think you're right. People don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, let's, let's spend some time going out and researching all these people who could help us. They say, ow, this hurts. How do I stop making it hurt? Oh, wait, there's someone who seems to be able to help me. So it's a very different approach. So. So in addition, you, you said we need to switch from quantity to quality. We need to have some better personas. What are some of the other things that we need to do to really react to what's going on in the market today? Yeah, the other leg of this uh, change in direction is that marketers need to focus more from MarTech to buyer enablement. Uh, we're calling this buyer experience or BX, just, you know, to add another mm -hmm. acronym to but you're not real until you have an acronym. We all know that. Right. Um, so, so, so buyer experience is something that starts with, as you were just saying, the discovery of a problem and the decision to go look for a solution through the sales cycle. And so um, as we become more ABM-oriented, um, uh, we need to have a, a construct in which marketers can transfer buyer intelligence more effectively to the people with whom uh, our buyers are going to have human conversations and all this stuff is going to become real, uh, the people on our sales team. And sales playbooks are increasingly being used, um, especially by uh, companies that are leading in sales. So there's definitely a correlation between those two things. 
Um, so I'm, I'm familiar what, with sales playbooks that I've seen for years. Is there a difference between what used to be done in a sales playbook and what you think is an effective playbook today? Yeah, great question. Um, in, in fact, I think there's there's five or six stages that we can identify uh, that differentiate among the different kinds of, of sales playbooks. So the, the basic one is where it's simply a single repository for everything. So mm-hmm. that's an advantage. It's better than having multiple repositories for everything, but uh, it's still the same old stuff, um, and sales has the same reaction that they had to it before. Uh, the second level is where it becomes a targeted set of tools and assets that address a particular market, a particular buyer, a particular situation. So that's much more helpful because that's actually what the seller, the, the salesperson, um, is about to engage in. They're talking to a single individual. But the problem there is that we haven't actually called generally as marketers the material that we're looking to equip that conversation with. So we still have all the stuff that we had before. And what we haven't done, and this is where um, we do that persona work and that um, buying cycle work, uh, is to identify what is the content that your buyers really want. Mm. Um, at the bottom of the funnel as well as the top of the funnel. What is the stuff that they don't want, and what is the form in which they're looking for it? And believe it or not, there are human beings who have opinions about those things, and they will tell you if you ask them in the appropriate manner. Um, And there is stuff that they will go out of their way to get because it's valuable, as well as all the stuff that they try to avoid. So the, the next key to that, is giving your sellers and your buyers the content that they're looking for. The next step then is to make sure that sales has bought into that and is part of the process. So mm-hmm. one of the things that we do is we identify the sales best practices of your, your best performing people uh, and sync that in, uh, sync it with your sales methodology and um, co-develop the sales playbook with them so that it is the voice of sales to sales for sales. So that overcomes a lot of the obstacles that sometimes occurs. No, by sometimes I mean always. You knew that one, right? <laughs> well, uh, people don't like last... things done to them. They want to be part of the solution. So I, I think you're absolutely right. You want to get them into the process early on. Totally. Um, and then, then now you've gotten to the lovely point of having a document, which we all know, you know, has a has a great shelf life, but not not much of a um, an active life. So, the sales playbook needs to be trained, so that the plays actually need to be um, experienced, practiced, and um, uh, fine refined with the sales team. And then the final thing that we've found that that has incredible impact is taking that experience, which will now, even though it's been trained, will deteriorate over time. And by the end of the month, you know, maybe 10% of it is remembered, turning it into a vehicle that is right there every morning on the Salesforce um, in front of the uh, screen in front of the seller so that it's part of their daily practice. 
Um, and we call that Playbooks Plus, and there's mm -hmm. more information about that on our sales, uh, on our um, uh, website. And I, I don't mean to make that sound like a commercial, but it is <laughs> – uh, a the result of frustration that we have had and we have seen in marketing and sales groups in this um, business for you know the last several years. You know, I, I think you, you've identified something here, which is that we, as marketers, we often think we know things. Even when we talk to the customer, we may really actually know what they're doing. But then we kind of push this off to sales, and sales says, well, I, I don't know. I talk to the customer every day, and I, I'm not sure that I really want to spend the time doing all this. So, um, you know, you're talking about um, training and behavior. Or you're talking about making this part of their daily usage. Um, are you finding that that's actually been effective, that, that sales forces are actually using this in salesforce.com or whatever they're using for their tools, but that salespeople are actually using these and finding some results that are happening as a result thereof. The beautiful thing about selling through a, through a sales team is that they are wonderfully adaptive, practical people who will do whatever works. So the answer is if you give them things that work, that they have the experience of being able to co-create and see how it makes a difference, adoption is incredibly easy and um, and it gets refined and it gets becomes part of the actual process of your company engaging with your marketplace. And he said something there which I think is really important which it gets refined. So this is not a static document, hey we did it, we wash our hands of it, we're done. But it's an iterative process and we learn as we go. Beats the alternative, doesn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. But how often as marketers have we created something, said, oh, done with that, got the stuff to sales, let's go on to the next project, right? So um, I think it's a different way of, of looking to say that this is something we're never quite done with. It's it's sort of like laundry. The second you finish it, you have to do it again. So And, and it's part of what you need to be able to have something to wear. So I, I think that's a different way of thinking. So we've been talking here with Wayne Cerullo from B2P Partners. And Wayne, you have a latest book is about something called repossibility. Talk to me a little bit about that. What is repossibility? Yeah, it, I, I thought it would be fun to close our conversation on a hopeful note. Um, okay. All companies start with a possibility, an idea, uh, but there are many companies for whom that original idea meets um, an obstacle. And back in the Great Recession, which was not called the Great Depression because that trademark was already taken, <laughs> it occurred to me that since we were all still here, apparently companies have gotten through tough times before. And the thought also occurred to me that if you're able to make it for tough through tough times, it's probably worth taking those lessons and applying them when, you know, you're not about to die, and see if you could make life better as a result. So I've identified a number of companies for whom success came because of the challenges that they faced, not despite them. And I find that incredibly encouraging. Um, so what we did was identify a number of companies with names that you'd recognize, like Xerox, IBM, Continental, De Beers, um, even the invention of the ice cream cone, 
all of which began uh, in the in the heat of battle, uh, metaphor intended, um, that um, they were faced with a death-defying challenge. And then they were able to respond to that in a way that helped them become the companies that we, you know, know them to be decades or, you know, even a century later. The thing that I found really powerful about it, Linda, was that from a marketer's perspective, each of those companies went through a process of missing the market. They were in touch with the market at one point, and then they got out of touch with their who their buyers were. And the way that all of them got in touch with their own repossibility was getting reconnected with who their prospects are and why they buy. And this has occurred on a dramatic basis with you know, hundreds of, of millions and billions of dollars of valuation swinging from, from negative to positive once a company gets reunited with who their buyers are and what their buyers want. Um, I was so excited about that, turned that into a small book. It's available on our website or on Amazon. I just find it incredibly encouraging to hear and to encourage the people in our companies with that if we that marketing matters if we're not in touch with our buyers we are at risk and the more we get in touch with our buyers the more we will flourish that makes sense and i think that's a great place to end this here so thank you wayne it's been a pleasure having you before i let you go can you tell people you've mentioned your website where can they go to get these tools and information that's on your website Sure, thanks. It's at b2ppartners.com. B2P helps B2B companies, and that's the reason I'm saying it so you can hear it clearly, become more prospect-centric. So it's b2ppartners.com. So business to prospects, B2P. Great. Correct. Thank you very much. It's been uh, wonderful to have you here. We could go on for hours, but I think we've got some great information here for our listeners. So thanks for being here. Thanks so much. This is Linda Popke. Until next time, thank you for listening to Marketing Thought Leadership. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Marketing Thought Leadership, brought to you by L2M Associates. If you'd like to find out how you can improve the return on your investment in marketing programs, processes, or people, contact us at www.l2massociates.com.